So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for Jesus, the light of the world and the word that was made flesh and as we've just been saying and singing, who died, um, who gave up all for us and yet who you have raised and is now in glory, exalted in heaven and present by his spirit. And may he be the focus of our hearts and minds now and always and may our ears be opened by your spirit to what you would say to us through this your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may have heard of something called mission drift. Uh, this is where an organisation uh, starts off with a sort of clear mission of, of what its job is, what its focus is in the world at this time. Um, but as time goes on, it gets distracted by lots of other things going on, lots of things it's trying to do, and forgets what it was originally starting out to be there for. I heard a few years ago, um, actually, of a lifeboat organisation, you know, a life-saving society, um, who, you know, when they first launched, went out on the sea and rescued sailors drowning in ships. Um, but a century or so later, had become basically a social club, meeting in the lifeboat house to remember rescues from the past and to fundraise for each other. And they never actually went out to sea anymore. Uh, and that's an extreme version of mission drift, but churches can do the same thing. We've been given a mission by God. You'll have to kind of ask me afterwards, you know, what's the mission that God's given the church? I think um, Jesus can tell us that. But we also can drift away from our mission. And we have so many things we're trying to do sometimes that we forget what's the the one important, the main thing that we should be doing uh, in Jesus' mission. And churches do this different ways. Um, Just thinking about tonight's passage and sort of leadership Sometimes churches do this by saying, well, let's make the pastor of the church the manager. So we'll make sure the pastor organizes us really well, the administration's great, um, the services are slick, and the website's amazing, um, and nothing's ever out of place, and the funds are in a good position, and the buildings are immaculate. A well-managed church, that's the kind of one model, and the pastor seems the person that, that... takes responsibility for that, or, you know, in a larger church, becomes like a director of a company. Uh, But you find at the same time, um, maybe the sermons on a Sunday are are not that well prepared because the pastor's been busy managing everything, Um, and there isn't very much in the way of kind of one-to-one discipling and encouragement going on in the congregation, no culture of meeting to encourage and grow in the faith together, or to share the gospel in the kind of ways that we heard about earlier. So that's the kind of the pastor's the manager thing. Another model is that we see the pastor's as the one-man band. The pastor does everything. Um, so uh, the church respects, and it's usually him, him for delivering sermons every Sunday, um, for visiting all the kind of sick people that they can, um, and counselling and praying with as many people as, as they can. And they're very grateful he does all this stuff um, and has time to listen to as many people as he can during the week. Um, and the service sheets get printed. He does those by hand himself as well. Um, But they notice that the services are a bit kind of frayed at the edges and chaotic. And again, the sermons aren't that well prepared. Um, And the poor pastor just can't get round to see all the people that need to be seen in the church. And of course, people forgive that and overlook it because they know how busy he is. Now, our church leaders have been working this last few months through a book called The Trellis and the Vine, which explores this sort of issue with mission drift, with how churches can lose our focus on our real mission, and it's partly because 
we have the wrong model of, of what the church should be. Either a church with a, a manager that runs us all and organizes us, or a, a pastor who's a, 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 a do-everything person. We just sit back and let them do everything, the one-man band. Um, I think this passage helps us to think about that. What's a better model for how churches can serve each other, serve Christ in the gospel work that we've been given to do in our mission. Uh, One of the themes, one of the kind of mottos we have as a church at the moment is that we want to be a church of disciples following Jesus who help each other to be disciples following Jesus or disciples who make disciples. How can we be that kind of community where everyone's helping each other to follow Jesus, both inside the church and those not yet part of the church? That's our real question. Now, in Acts so far, um, we're coming to the end of a section tonight, we've seen the spread of the good news, the gospel. Um, That theme of the word of God spreading, it's not just the title of our series, Spreading the Word, it's actually probably the main theme of the book of Acts. So our last verse of our passage tonight, verse 7, ends with this. So the word of God spread. And that's a little phrase that Luke, the writer, puts in several times in Acts. They're kind of chapter summaries, chapter-ending phrases. So this is the end of a section here. The word of God has begun to spread. It's still in Jerusalem. That's the story so far. And we're going to see, when we come back to Acts, that the word of God begins to spread beyond Jerusalem next, just as Jesus said it would, to Judea and Samaria. And that's the next section of Acts, through to the end of, uh, halfway through chapter 9, verse 31. And then it goes on beyond Samaria to what Jesus calls the ends of the earth, and that's the rest of the book of Acts. So, end of a section, and we've seen so far the word of God spreading, but we've seen obstacles to the word of God spreading as well that God has had to overcome. So we saw one of the obstacles has been um, persecution. The apostles put in prison more than once already. We're only in chapter 6. And God's overcome that each time through prayer and his intervention. And we've also seen opposition uh, coming from inside the church in the form of of potential division, um, where a particular couple were pretending to be generous givers, giving all they had, but actually were holding some back for themselves, which could have been very destructive and divisive for the church. And again, God overcame that obstacle too, to keep his church united, to keep his word spreading. Tonight, we've got a different, a third obstacle to the word of God spreading. And again, it's inside the church this time, and it's the problem of grumbling in the church. We've only really got two points. One is the problem, and the other one is the solution tonight. So the problem is grumbling in the church. And it's quite a familiar picture, if you look at verse 1 there, in those days when the number of disciples is increasing, so the the church is growing, the word is spreading, uh, and then the Grecian Jews complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So two groups in the church, quite a common issue, isn't it, who are um, distinct groups part of one church, but are beginning to rub up against each other. And grumbling is beginning to happen. Now the Greek um, or Hellenistic Jews were probably from other parts of the Mediterranean, probably came to Jerusalem, for instance, for the Pentecost festival we looked at a couple of weeks ago, 
have come to Christ, but of course come from a Greek-speaking culture. And they're distinct from the Hebraic Jews, who were almost certainly um, Jews who lived in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, and whose primary language was, was Hebrew or Aramaic, very similar language, not Greek primarily. And these two cultures are, are now, because of the gospel and the power of the gospel to unite people, are in one church together. But the power of the gospel also produces the problem, two different cultures being pressed together in one church. And they're suspicious, suspicious of each other. Um, the Hebraic Jews seem to be more numerous. After all, they're, they're local. They're from Jerusalem. Uh, and murmuring is going on about this by the Greek Jews, um, the words gongusma, um, it's kind of one of those onomatopoeic. You know, it sounds like, the word sounds like what it's describing. Gongusma, they they're grumbling, they're muttering about the problem. And the problem is a, a problem of justice, of, of the poor in the church being neglected. The widows in the Greek-speaking part of the church are not receiving the same amount of food as the widows in the Hebrew-speaking part of the church. And, you know, they say, don't they, rather like children, you know, that's not fair. Now, the church saw it as a right thing to do to support widows in need. This came really from the Old Testament, um, where there was the command to care for widows who had no way of supporting themselves. It's balanced by New Testament teaching saying... um, Those that can support themselves should do so, including widows. But where there's no means of support, the church should look after them. So here are the apostles and the church saying, that's the right thing to do. These widows are poor. They have no way of supporting them. Let's make sure that they get their daily food, that they don't starve. It's a good thing. But the complaint is that some of them are being overlooked, neglected is the kind of idea here. They're being forgotten by the pressure of the busy church and by the demands of of probably the larger Hebrew-speaking widow group. Now, it's probably not deliberate. It's probably not the apostles saying, oh, you know, those Greek-speaking widows, um, they're always wanting more food. Let's just ignore them. They're a problem. Let's just pretend they're not there. Let's feed our own ones and not worry about them. It's probably not that sort of deliberate marginalizing. It's probably just an oversight Because the apostles, as you get the sense in this passage, don't you, are too busy to notice the danger here. And is a danger. Uh, Not just that widows will go hungry, but the church will be divided and the word will be obstructed. The gospel won't reach other parts of the world. So isn't it interesting that just a a kind of a, a lack of any administrative structure here is having a very profound effect on the whole church, the unity of the church, and potentially the spread of the gospel to the Greek-speaking world. So it could well be this uh, much more than just about food. Or even, you know, justice in the church. It's more than just Jewish and Greek Christians not getting on with each other. It could be there's a whole issue about who the gospel's really for. Is it for people like us, the the apostles, the Jewish followers of Christ from Jerusalem? Or is it also 
for those who've come from elsewhere whose primary culture is Greek. There's a theory uh, in some New Testament circles that uh, the Jewish and the Greek Christians were really not speaking to each other and actually had different understandings of what a Christian is. And, you know, Peter and Paul supposedly characterized those two distinct understandings. That's probably almost certainly been well over um, emphasized. But there probably is a cultural clash going on here, which could have been quite destructive for the gospel and for the spread of the gospel to the world. So it's, it's not a completely unfamiliar picture in churches today. Um, certainly to have this problem of pastors unable to make sure everyone's being looked after because they're running around trying to do all the administration. Where a pastor's expected to you know, look after all the visiting of sick people. Um, the needs of all the people in the church. The administration of all the church finances. As well as you know, all the admin behind church gatherings and Sunday services, resolving all the difficulties and disagreements of the members and so on. And it's just a case, in simple human terms, isn't it? Just common sense, the tyranny of the urgent that takes the place of the really important. And you notice in that kind of church that that things like the the preaching, the preparing of sermons, the teaching um, in small groups too, um, where leaders are too busy with other things, the prayer for the gospel to spread and grow in the church and beyond the church, when those things get sidelined, the sermon becomes like a thought for the day. Um, And the, the church life loses its power because there's no prayer driving it and generating it. But as I've said already, it's not just a matter of kind of the administration going on, and if that's taking over, then the preaching suffers. There is this thing about culture. The Hebrews and the Greeks are being divided from each other, and that impacting the spread of the gospel. Um, so today, you know, where, where there are parts of a church that are being overlooked, whether it's you know the young or the old, or those from a particular culture that's a minority in the congregation. Um, those groups can sometimes never get to hear about Jesus because no one thinks of them. It's not deliberate. It's just an oversight that they're neglected. So the problem happens in the church, but of course it's, it's a problem that's magnified in the wider society. You know, just, just think back sort of 40 years um, to the, the situation in the United States and the campaign for equality for Afro-Caribbeans. Martin Luther King, um, who's in many ways the, the leader of that movement, wasn't he? He identified this neglect of, of black people, not just in the church, did include the church, but in the whole uh, North American culture in the United States. Uh, and he was arrested once for leading a non-violent protest, and eight white clergy criticised his actions, and he wrote this very powerful letter in response when they said that uh, he just needs to be more patient and and let things change in due course. He said, it's easy for those who've never felt the the stinging darts of segregation to cry, wait. But when you've seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, 
when you've seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you find your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she cannot attend the public amusement park that's just been advertised on television, and you see clouds of inferiority start to form in a little mental sky and her developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people. When you're fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. Now, that's just a, a particularly powerful example of how, in society, this cultural neglect can be profoundly divisive. But in the church, neglect of groups is potentially even more damaging, isn't it, than neglect of groups out in society. Because it can divide the body of Christ, it can dishonor Christ himself, and it can prevent the spread of the word of God. So that's why the apostles see this problem happening. They see their pressure they're under, they see the word of God being neglected, and they see the widows being neglected, and the cultures being divided, and they act. And they make a really bold and swift suggestion. So here, number two, is the solution that's proposed. If the problem was grumbling, the solution is to appoint a new group of leaders. So, verse three, they gather the whole church, they make a double proposal. Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we'll turn this responsibility, that's the responsibility for the administration of the food to the widows, over to them and devote ourselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. The apostles know, don't they, that the service of the needy, serving the needs of the widows, needs to be done properly and well. And they suggest that seven wise, godly people are appointed for that role. Now, they're not saying, are they, that waiting on tables is in any way less important than what they are called to do as apostles. They're not saying it's beneath them. They were quite prepared to do their waiting when they had to. But they see that their calling is to word ministry and therefore others need to be appointed to the table ministry. In fact, Luke uses the same word here um, for the ministers that they're undertaking. It's the word diaconia. It just means serving, ministering is our long word for that. But it's just serving. So they are saying, we need to do the serving the word So let's appoint godly people to serve the tables, to serve the finances, if you like, of the church. Both are service, both are ministry, both are equally important. It's a great reminder that um, we shouldn't regard roles within the church family as more or less important than each other. The ministry of preaching or leading worship or playing in the music group or welcoming at the door or serving the coffee or serving our children on a Sunday morning, they are all ministries. They're not rotors. They're not even activities, are they? They are ministries. We are serving the gospel ultimately as we serve each other. That's why some years ago, a church famously put a sign up outside their building instead of saying, you know, minister the reverend so-and-so, it just said, ministers, colon, the people. That's actually very biblical. That's the kind of idea here. Word, ministry, table ministry. Verse 
It also reminds us that these ministries, even if they sound very practical ones, require spiritual maturity. He says, choose men full of the spirit and wisdom. So not, not just kind of anyone can do that. These need godly people, partly because almost certainly they're looking after the church's finances here. It's a stewardship of, of the church's resources, making sure that people receive them fairly. Very significant role. Could even be a second reason that these men have to be godly men um, because they're being appointed and commissioned in prayer, potentially as leaders for the future outreach to the Greek-speaking world. I say that because two of them go on in the next chapters, Stephen and Philip, to be very significant evangelists, reaching across cultural boundaries with the good news of Jesus. That may not have happened if they'd not been commissioned by the church for this role. They're certainly not just you know, waiters in the church widow's retirement home, are they? They're godly men with a big role. And so we need leaders here, don't we, to, to reach parts of maybe our community currently that are underrepresented in our congregation, that we're not reaching, even though perhaps because the world around us is like that, we should be reaching. Perhaps we're underrepresented in our church numerically in terms of children and families, or in terms of um, asylum seekers, or in terms of particular groups of young adults in our community, and they're numerous in our area. Now here's a challenge, isn't it? Do we need to look at how we encourage people into leadership roles, godly men and women, so that the gospel can be released to reach the people from their culture? I'll put it this way. For the gospel to reach another culture, is it that believers from that culture will need to be involved in leadership? For the gospel to reach another culture from the dominant one in Holy Trinity, could it be that we need to appoint leaders from that culture or age group or ethnicity to help the gospel to reach that culture? So, the care of the neglected Hellenistic widows is sorted out by delegation. They say, look, appoint these seven men, get them to look after the widows properly, and we can then get on with the ministry of the prayer and the word. And so, as well as a practical need getting met, secondly, we see a spiritual need being met. The spiritual needs of the whole church, the spread of the word, because the apostles say, we'll devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And this is great wisdom, isn't it, for, certainly for church pastors, uh, about not letting administration take over their entire week and day. Um, that with all the inevitable practical tasks that come along for those in church leadership, um, and whatever administration there always is, those things so easily get in the way of prayer and evangelism and preaching and preparing those sermons. And churches do need clergy to spend less time in meetings and committees and more time on their knees sharing the gospel one-to-one and in groups with people and in the study preparing prayerfully and thoroughly their preaching. More time 
on those things, less time in the admin and meetings. And churches can help with that, of course, by setting up um, systems of admin support, um, whether it's like you know, admin staff or church council leadership that take on some of those roles around the finances and the fabric and, and so on. And the way that the book that I referred to at the beginning that we've been reading as a leadership refers to this is, is Trellis and Vine. The trellis is, is the kind of structures that we need in the church that hold the plant up, hold the organization up, so that the vine, the plant, the organism, can flourish upon it. You need the trellis, but you need the right kind of trellis. So that the vine, the real gospel work, the work of Jesus in the hearts and minds and lives of all of us, can flourish. So I guess what the apostles were doing there, they were saying, appoint these seven men so that that there's a a really strong trellis structure here. The church is being well organized and we can then proclaim the gospel and pray so that the vine, the living organization, the body of Christ can flourish and grow. The word can spread. So isn't it interesting? We we hugely value prayer here at Holy Trinity and especially our monthly evening prayer meeting. Um, which will be taking place Wednesday week as part of our Everybody Welcome course. But actually sometimes, this is saying, isn't it, that, that, that a straightforward business meeting is as effective as a prayer meeting where a decision is made that releases people to get on with ministry and also releases the gospel at the same time. Because the impact of that little decision is huge. They had a problem, the grumbling, a solution, delegation. The impact, though, is massive, Lots of things. The hungry in the church get fed, don't they? The unity between cultures in the church is protected when it could have been divided, and that's critical. The need of the church for their leaders to be devoted to prayer and the word is protected as well. But actually, there's a fourth impact, which is the word of God spread. Verse 7 the word of God spread. The number of disciples increased and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So yes, this decision is going to enable the gospel to reach the Greek-speaking world eventually, but right now they're reaching the priests right here in Jerusalem because the apostles are free to proclaim the news about Jesus. The vine grew, the trellis supported it, the teaching watered that vine and through the harmony of the preaching and the organization in the church, the word of God, the gospel, was released in power. Let's pray that as a church here and in churches across this city, there'll be that harmony in our ministries and that heart for the word that the vine may flourish here too. Let's pray. In a moment, Rob's going to come lead us in our uh, intercessions, but first a moment to pause and to pray in response to uh, the word of God tonight and whatever it is that God has particularly put in our hearts through that. Father God, we pray for ourselves as we thank you for the good news of Jesus. We pray that You'll help us to receive that news afresh. 
we've been reminded how life-changing the word about Jesus is. We thank you for that power. We thank you that in your goodness, nothing will prevent it being shared and spread. We pray that we may be agents of that spread ourselves, proclaiming it ourselves um, through prayer and through our words this week. And we pray too that you'll show each of us our particular ways of serving, of ministering that word in the church here. May we be a church where all are encouraged and through that encouragement where the word word may be released to change lives, to change hearts, to make followers of Jesus who ourselves are all making more followers of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.